Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Richard Bernato with us. Now, school leaders, indeed any leader, must always remember that none of us is as smart as all of us. Unless, that is, we don't know how to be smart together. Richard's whole career has been based on the notion and entwined with the basic belief that an organization can only grow and sustain itself if it has coalesced around true and deep purpose, and that that purpose, their preferred future, is guided by skills, dispositions, and collaborative practices to build the structures now to assure that preferred future. He laments that while everyone plans, schools really don't plan very well. Present or aspiring leaders would serve their organizations more effectively if futuring were an active component in their culture. Richard has had a 48-year professional career in education that spans higher education, K-12 leadership roles that include teaching, principal curriculum development and assistant superintendent, two consultancies in New York State Education, BOCES, and many school districts in school improvement. His main interests include futuring systems, shared planning and decision-making, and high engagement of all stakeholders to ensure systematically healthy organizational practices and effective schooling. So, welcome, Dr. Richard Bernato. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Hope you're well, too. I'm doing fine. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. Of course. So, are you ready to pour into our listeners? Go for it. Awesome. All right. So, can you share with us a bit about your leadership journey? You only have a half hour on the podcast? Uh, you know, as long as you want. So I'll try to keep it brief. I always wanted to be a leader, school leader particularly. Really? Yeah. It kind of goes back to our game comedy, and you're too young to remember that, but I thought of myself as Spanky, and he was always the one in charge of things. I remember Spanky. And I always kind of thought that's how I was supposed to behave in many senses. But when I went to St. John's University undergraduate, I came through my social studies education certification program, I was just about to graduate, and I said to myself, okay, I want to be a social studies teacher, but I said, I really want to run a building. So I hadn't even graduated yet. And I walked over to the graduate center. I spoke to the dean. And I said, I'd like the interview for entering the administrative leadership program. And he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And he said, have you graduated yet? And I said, no. He said, well, come back in three years because that was the minimum amount of time you needed to be eligible to become part of a program like that. That's how far back it goes. But I did become a social studies teacher for, I guess, about 15 years. And I was very fortunate, actually. I was in a junior high at the time. It was a team set up with four teachers. None of us knew each other. And I just automatically kind of became the leader of the group. And we worked on a lot of curriculum projects and really innovative things. And at a time when you weren't so regulated and what you, you did or didn't. Yeah, you could go crazy. And that's, we did the 
battle of Gettysburg outside, those kinds of things. I did go get my administrative degree and latched on with an assistant superintendent for instruction who forever changed me. Whole philosophy of working with people and making people want to work together and to catalyze each other just stuck with me. So he was your mentor? Big time. And I had other mentors after that, but he was the person I always point to. Unfortunately, he died very young. And to this day, it just bothers me to know that he didn't get a chance to be all of what he could have been. But I worked for him in the Department of Instruction in the central office as a master teacher, as a uh, staff developer, so to speak. Wrote a national award for what we were doing. That all the more pushed me. I wanted to become Larry, who was the person I was talking about. To make a long story short, I got into the shoot, the C-H-U-T-E, in the Connecticut School District in central Suffolk County on Long Island. And I was the dean of students in the high school and one of the other junior highs. I bumped into the superintendent and I told him that I missed him. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, you miss me? Because I had worked in the central office before that. He said, you want to come back? And I said, it's what? He said, it's pupil personnel director. So I said, I don't know anything about pupil personnel. He said, you'll learn it. You're smart. So I went over and became a pupil personnel director for a few years. And when I took the job, I told him, but I really want to be a principal. He said, that will be a step backward in this district. I said, I don't care. That's what I want to be. So when an opening came, I said, that's the job I'd like to be considered for. And I got the job. And that was probably the happiest part of my professional career, quite frankly. It was just a wonderful time, wonderful set of teachers and parents and kids where I got to practice my leadership out on them, particularly that of collaborative leadership practices, futuring those kinds of premises. I made a mistake that went up being a good thing to do in the end, although at the time it didn't seem like that, by you know, leaving the building and accepting a promotion back into secondary as a director of humanities for two or three years. And then the assistant superintendency came open, for which I applied and was lucky enough to get. And I didn't want to be a superintendent until the time I was eligible to retire. And then I started thinking, hmm, I could be a superintendent. But I never did, and I really don't lose any sleep about it. I probably retired too soon. Not a probably, I did retire too soon. And parallel to that, I was doing a a lot of writing and I was doing a lot of consulting and I was also an adjunct professor at Downing College and in Queens College for their leadership programs and curriculum programs. I just got my doctorate from Downing and I was fortunate enough to become an associate professor in their EDD program in the School of Education where I was asked to take charge of something called NCATE. You know, then it was the national accreditation for teacher ed schools of education and that took what was left of my hair off the top of my head and from that I became the assistant dean. And then uh, Downing College closed about a year ago, but it had financial issues forever. So I was a casualty of a purge about five or six years ago for that. And I landed uh, at St. John's University on the graduate education level as a professor in the uh, doctoral program. And that's where I am right now. I'm having a blast. And you're also an author? I'm an author. I've tried to write fiction for the last 30 years, and I've had no luck with that. But I can write articles in our profession people will read. And I just wrote a book. Uh, Futures Based Change Leadership. Tell us about that. I'm very proud of that. It's hard to explain all the premises in a brief amount of time. But the short story behind this is that my premise is that a futures based change leader has to be mindful, first of all, of a denominator. And the denominator would be the organization's cultural capacity to change. And quite frankly, and I tell my students here all the time, if they're not here for school reform and improvement, then they shouldn't be in a doctoral program or an administration certificate program for that matter as well. I firmly, strongly believe that. So that if, if you think of the denominator as the organization's capacity to change its culture, that consists of three pieces. That consists of systems thinking, Peter Senge, five disciplines premises, collaborative leadership practices, which is what I hang my hat on. That was my doctoral research. And something called the theory U, the letter U. Most people haven't heard of that. Those three pieces, systems thinking, collaborative leadership, and the theory U are the denominator that comprise the organization's 
cultural capacity to change. But that's all moderated by the numerator, which is futuring, which I can't define very well, except to call it a set of skills and dispositions. And the best way to explain it is to say there are three kinds of futures. There's possible, there's probable, and there's preferable. Possible is anything is possible. Pigs might be able to fly someday. That's possible, I suppose. And then there's probable. And there are some things that are more probably going to happen. And then there's preferable. That is to say, things that we know that we want. Now, everybody futures every day. And you decided to come out here to speak to me. That was a future that you created for yourself today. When a squirrel buries acorns, the squirrel is futuring because they know they need the acorn up the road someplace. But it's more than that. It's about intending what you think the emerging future is about. And more importantly, deciding whether you like what that emerging future is. For example, I might say, well, my demographics are changing in my school district. That's a probability without a doubt. We know that's happening. Now, the preferable future is how I as a leader intend to involve my staff and my community to work with that future or not. I know of districts that pretended that the demographics weren't changing and pretended like the new population that was coming in were just going to be part of what the old population was expecting. And the result of that, you and I are both familiar with. Things aren't necessarily going so well in lots of places because of that badly futured, so to speak. No, the smart leader futures. And more than that, the smart leader teaches futuring skills. So everyone knows how to future together collaboratively to shape the intended future that aligns with what they think their purpose is. It's like backwards design, right? Yes. You think of the future and what do I need to do in the present to get there? Yes, well said. The decision delayed is a decision made. So if we intend to overlook something or pretend it doesn't exist or not know that it's coming, then we get the future we deserve. I would say there are political examples of this and let, let, you know, let people think what they may be one way or another. Well, thank you so much for that. So if our readers wanted to get a copy of your yes. book, how could they do that? It's on Amazon, Futures Based Change Leadership. I'll put, plug in my name, B-E-R-N-A-T-O. It's on, in Barnes & Noble. It's doing pretty well right now. You have a copy. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So Richard, how would you describe your leadership style? It's collaborative. I truly believe that. There's a saying that none of us is as smart as all of us, except when we're stupid together. Because there are groups that don't know how to be smart together. And that goes back to the futuring premise, where you really need to learn how to truly engage teachers, parents, kids, when that's appropriate, in recognizing what they want to create, so to speak. And that's how I've been operating from forever. When I got the principal's job I told you about, I remember being interviewed. Someone asked me a question similar to that, and I said, well, you know, I believe in committees. And the previous principal, who was a terrific principal, turned red, and I said to myself, he doesn't agree with that. And he was a very unilateral, I'm the boss type of principal, and that's how the building had evolved, and evolved well, by the way. I'm a 180 on that. To me, it's much more important to find out what you think, incorporate it into what we think. How can you be smart together if you only decide to be smart together when it suits you? Now, I've run into people who will argue the point. After all, you know, the buck stops here and all those kinds of things. I have always believed I could catalyze a group to be more than what they were when they came in. I'm pretty good at that. That's wonderful. So what type of leader are you inspired by and why? This person, Larry, I told you about. Yes, he was all about that some of the parts exceeds the sum of the whole, whatever that geometrical formula is. It's clear in the conversations and how people come together to do the things that really matter. Again, from the political sense, where people, for one reason or another, from wherever their value systems are driving them, coalesce around each other and do more than they can do individually, assuming, again, that they use the right kinds of skills to make sure that what their values are are valid. And school systems are good examples of that. When the innovation du jour comes up the road and people will grasp at it, or 
people will react negatively towards something that's coming down the line and fight it with guns and knives so they don't want that to happen. That shouldn't have to be. It should be that the leader gives out the right kind of information and then folks can process it and distill it so they can see what it truly means for what may be happening up the road and that they can also figure out what they really want from it. I just wrote an article for the town. And if you think about it, does anybody really know what they want out of education anymore? You line up 10 people and 10 people will give you 10 different answers. I want my kid to have a good job. I want them to be good citizens. I just want them to read and write. I want them to be nice. I want them to have fun. I want them to compete on the international level in PISA tests. And the truth of the matter is, no one can agree on what it is that they think that they want. So what we do with school leaders, because we have our own people we need to answer to, is we have to flail around trying to meet all of those so-called perceptions. Instead of finding a way to say, well, these are the three things we really want to see happen. I do a lot of strategic planning consults. Now, when you look at people's mission statements, I will not let them come up with their vision and mission when we first begin the conversation, contrary to how some people approach a strategic plan, because to me, they don't know yet. And the only way they need to know that is to be able to splash around in deep dialogue and meaningful conversations. Now, that goes back to David Bohm. He talks about true reflective practices. That's a book that I would recommend. He's actually a physicist. He's not an educator. And it's Sometimes stu- we learn from people Hello, outside yeah. of our I'm going to recommend some other books that, okay. are, that are not education books. Okay. Bohm talks about reflective practices and giving people a chance to think about what it is that they're doing. And then also, my wife will tell you I'm not that good at this. I think I talk the talk about this better than I walk it, at least with her, <laughs> is that people need to hear what other people are saying and get underneath what people are saying. In Italy, there's a phrase called dietrologia, which is the message behind the music. It's an Italian art form, I'm told. So if I said to you, as an example, oh, I see you washed your hair today, you might take from that that I'm saying, oh, you don't wash your hair every day. But if you listen to people in a group, especially in all these committees that we're all part of, if you listen to what people are saying, it's all I thinks. Now, I think this is what you think, so I understand what you're thinking, so we can maybe create something new out of that. That's a skill that needs to be acquired. It's not an easy skill to learn. Well, Um, listening is part of leadership, too. And, you know, part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast and, and having a conversation with you is so that I can grow my leadership skills, but also that our listeners can. Learning from each other, grabbing at the things that speak to us, and perhaps maybe even shifting. And synthesizing it. In fact, when you hear shared decision-making, for example, the expectation is to come to consensus. And that's a word no one understands. It took me a long time to understand it, too. Margaret Thatcher used to say that consensus is the absence of leadership. I could see why she says that, although I don't agree with it. But when you talk about consensus and you say, for example, well, we don't like how well our uh, free and reduced lunch children are performing. And someone says, well, I think it's about their parents or their lack of parenting. And no one tries to understand what that is really about and whether that's even a valid statement to begin with at all, then it's the obligation of the group to try to parse that down, slice that, and try to come up with a true consensus, which would be to create a new statement out of that, that everyone will intellectually and emotionally buy into, that doesn't necessarily solve all the political differences among the group, but something that's been created that's new and synthesized. That's what Bohm would say. And that's very hard to do. But, you know, the guns between our eyes to do things yesterday and move along and answer to, you know, the powers that be out there are throws in this tizzy instead of saying, let's just slow down and say, we're solving this. Right. Here's how we're going to do it. And that goes back to the futuring premise, too, because when you future something, you plan it out. The buzzword would be a strategically planted. I don't like that word. But, well, that implies, you know, five to seven years. And we just don't have that kind of patience. So we ping pong between one idea that sounds great today and one that sounds great tomorrow. And they're both diametrically... We don't, we don't give it time to marinate. And- Good word.
I love that word. Yeah, I like it too. Do you like to cook? I, I'm, I'm I like, like to eat. I like to eat, but I watch my wife will cook. <laughs> so, Richard, what is the best advice you ever received? Actually, from my uncle Richie. May he rest in peace. And he was a bricklayer. You know, he may have gotten out of high school. I'm not sure. And I worked for him in summers, in the early parts of my teaching years. And the man knew how to work people as well as anybody I've ever met. And basically, he used to say, you always have to listen. And then you be clever. You don't tell people what they want to hear. You need to tell people what it is that they really want to hear. It's funny because it's come around, right? That's mm -hmm. what you're saying now. Yeah. I forgot about that, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that. He just kind of popped into my mind. And I learned as much from him about leadership as I learned from anyone. But that's good advice. And the other fellow will be Larry, who basically said, none of us is as smart as all of us, unless they're stupid together. <laughs> and that's true. We can be stupid together. Um, so was Larry a good connector? Yeah, he had a doctorate in that, yes. He was a very appealing kind of guy in lots of ways. Because he would listen, he could get you to want to work for him. And he had no problem setting a course. But if you said to him, well, can we look at that another way? He would say, well, let me hear what you're saying. And if you thought it made sense, he would go with it. And I think in all of our collective experiences, that's unfortunately more rare than we want to own up to. And it's interesting because when you have that skill, when you're a good connector, to me, it shows that you value me. Absolutely. And that'll move students. It moves anybody. If I feel valued by a leader, that to me is inspiring. My very first education administration professor, Tom Bowman at CW Post, first course we were in said, it's our job to grow people. And when you got to reach out to grow people, you're amazed what comes out of that. I say that a lot in my educational leadership courses. They think they know why they're here for their doctorates, but until you scrape them a little bit and press them and make it clear to them that you have faith in them to do what they have to do, it's just kind of amazing what they suddenly will come back with. I had a student a few years ago who had a survey she wanted to use, and the survey came off a shelf from someplace. Well, the survey was fine, but and I kept saying to her, I said, is that what you want to know? Yeah, that's what I want to know, because it was an easy survey to give. And I said, well, what would make this a richer dissertation? And she looked at me, Dr. B, you're trying to get me to think, think about something else to do, and I don't want to do any more than what I have to do. So she came back about two weeks later. She said, you wouldn't let me sleep, would you? She said, I know. And she went through this whole list of things that she needed to do to really round out the study. It's one of my sources of pleasure for me, intellectual and emotional sometimes, to work with students who can evolve and grow within their research. So you push them to think. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you've cultivated many teams. So what does it mean to you to have a good team and how could you build or sustain one? Well, I'm going to use uh, some research for that. There's a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by uh, Patrick Lencioni. And it's such a simple little book. I use it a lot in my consulting lately because that book helps a team recognize the dysfunctions of a team, beginning with the issue of trust. And if they don't trust each other, then nothing else is going to happen with the group. But the good facilitator of a group has to be sure that the trust issues are taken care of straight away as best they can. And the best way to do that is to hear, have people hear each other and then try to come to some kind of melting of the minds about how that would work. And the another piece of that too is, again, coming back to the Futuring book, is the skill of being able to politely challenge each other. I've trained them in the shared decision-making teams. When I first started doing that, if someone said, you know, two plus two is five, everybody would say, it was five. Finally, someone would say, well, no, two and two is four. But it was so hard for them to challenge each other because they, they wanted to be congenial and cohesive and polite. and polite that they really were missing the mark on how a good team operates. A good team is fine with hearing each other and trying to understand where the errors are and then trying to come to, to some kind of valid conclusion about what that's about. Mm -hmm. 
So I've learned in working with so many teams that the first thing you need to do is work on those five dysfunctions, especially the trust issue. And then you need to learn some skills that they don't necessarily know. The most obvious one is how to look at data, qualitative and quantitative, other skills of futuring, for example, which by the way, are actually business skills. In the business world, they learn these skills. And there's authors like Edwin Cornish, Huggers, and Bishop that they need to learn in order to elevate the conversation and be able to break their mental models down and truly see what they think is coming up the road. So can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Oh, wow. Uh, I had to get over thinking what an Italian kid was supposed to be. Oh, tell me about that. Well, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class family. Parents didn't go to school. My mother was very bright, but my parents didn't go to school. Didn't really value education a whole heck of a lot. Didn't want me to go to college because they just didn't see it. There's a Sicilian saying that says, never raise your children to be smarter than you. That's an actual mm-hmm. phrase, and my father truly believed that. And I think I had to understand what their perceptions of me were, and I, how I had the right to supersede those. And then, you know, the neighborhood I grew in, it was certain... In Queens, Rosedale, where Italian kids weren't expected to be good students necessarily. I, mean, I can think of quite a few who were very bright and very accomplished. And I think I had to get through that. I didn't recognize that for a long time until the last several years. So that was a problem for me. And I bet you had to address that when you were thinking about futuring and the theory you, right? You had to go back to you. I had to shed the old, download, get rid of those old models. I still have problems with that every now and then. I say, well, they don't really care what I think. You're still a work in progress. Amen. I journal every morning. You do? Oh, sure. Oh, about we'll 25 talk. years. We'll yeah. We'll be talking about that. So you had to break that mold, right? What I thought people expected of me or did not expect of me was what I internalized. I'm not saying that they did think that, but I thought that they thought that. And that actually held me back, I think, for quite a while. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you? The latest thing I'm hoping is this book, because the book, I think, captures a lot of the things that I've evolved over the years. On a personal level, I can't be any more proud of, of my family, of my kids and of my wife and the wonderful life that she helped put together <laughs> more than I have. I'm very proud of that, and that's certainly shaped a lot of who I am and what I'm about, especially my wife's influence. But I would say uh, on the professional level, I was always amazed when people thought I actually was uh, able to do certain things. Maybe that goes back to what I said before. So then when someone like this fellow Larry said, you know, I need you to leave this classroom and become this for me. I was shocked by that. That he believed in you yes, more than you did. Yes, absolutely. And gave me things to do that I didn't think I could do. And for the most part, I was pretty successful with. When we won that national award, it was what I wrote, but it wasn't my accomplishment so much as the collection of the group we worked with the think tank we were in and of my boss. That was pretty nice. And then being a principal, I think, particularly, and seeing that building transform itself, it really become more than what they could be. And and it was a great school before I got there. I inherited a terrific faculty. But they really didn't think they could do some things. I said, let's talk about it. Let's make it work. Not everything worked all the time. But in the end, we didn't know there were quality circles, but that's what they were. (laughs) We didn't know there were PLCs because we didn't have those names then, but that's what we did. There was I would come into my building in the morning, and there may be six or seven groups meeting before school started. Technology, literacy, discipline, you name it. And there were parents and teachers would be sitting around trying to get to the nub of what issues were about. And then they would bring it back to our council, and that council would adjust to how we would do things, and we'd put those things in motion. I was very proud of that. And when I left, I felt badly for the group because we hadn't finished everything we wanted to finish. You didn't finish either of what you wanted no, to finish, right? No, no. I'm never finished. <laughs> one of 
what I love about that story is that when we first started talking, you said that that was one of your goals as a kid. You always wanted to lead a building. Yes. You knew that. Yes. I've been blessed on that, Kim. I've been blessed to be here. I practice my beliefs out on more students. And uh, not everybody, but a lot of them. Uh, I mean, somebody did a dissertation yesterday. It was total Bernardo. In fact, one of the committee members says, "Did you pay him to write that?" And I said, "No," <laughs> but I'm really pleased that he took it because he actually took it further than I could have taken it. So. Awesome. So, Richard, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Uh, like I said, I journal every day, and I learn things about focusing what I do. I'm also a Disney idiot savant. I look at Disney as a great example of systems thinking. And we go there more often than I probably have a right to go. You still go? Oh, yeah. I take grandchildren there now. And, uh, that's my next career, I think, if I could do that. To continue to create, whether it be lessons or books or poems or new organizations to like, draw the last breath, I will be creating something. That's that, why you're such an epic fail at retirement? Oh, yeah. Well, I might be retiring. I don't think I might be retiring. Be I would still be creating. That's right. I've been teaching myself Italian for the last five years. I can read it and write it and speak it pretty well. I can't hear it, though. My ear is not fast enough to follow it. I've been teaching myself golf. I'm starting to play around a little bit with some political things, not to run for anything, but just to contribute to the thinking a little bit. So you're thinking of influence, yeah. which is what leaders do. Yeah, I didn't think of that. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Great question. First, they need to make sure they understand the root causes. What's really going on? You know, sometimes the root causes are internal and their own perceptions and mental models that they have to confront. And other times it's the other group. I'm thinking of a woman I knew who I was friendly with and having a terrible time when she became a principal. And she inherited a building where the principal was a god. And uh, she was being held to dance because she wasn't the old principal. And she just couldn't reconcile that until you know someone had to say, oh, you have to be what you are. And then what you are, if it's valid, will win the day. So people have to look outside to see what the issues may be. But they also have to look inside and see what, what are they doing or not doing that's creating that kind of discomfort. Until we understand the culture, truly understand the culture. We can't change the culture. How do you suggest someone do that? Because they're in it. Yes. You know, and sometimes when you're in it, you can't see the forest for the trees. Yes. And, and you can't see yourself. I mean, that's a big call. Big time. You see the root causes in yourself or yeah. that blind spot or change your mindset. So what advice would you give someone to get to that point. Yeah. This might sound a little hackneyed, maybe you've heard of it uh, before. The five whys is the Japanese business technique. When something is really troubling you or a group, ask a why question five times. By research, the fifth why, you really have the root issue. And the example I always give is a child comes in, child's habitually late, and you say to the kid, you know, why are you late? And the kid says, the alarm clock didn't go off. Well, why didn't the alarm clock go off? It wasn't set. Well, why wasn't it set? My mother had a fight with my daddy again. There's the root cause. If you can get a group or an individually. When I have trouble sometimes, I'll write it out. If you write out a why five times, you'll get deeper at what it is you're truly trying to uncover and peel back. Now, in a group, this is a little artificial, and this is not original. I took this from uh, Edgar Schein, Organizational Culture and Leadership. I've done this several times now in some of my consults, and it's amazing what happens. I'll tell the group to come in with artifacts of the building. Tell me what artifacts represent the building. I did this in Fishers Island, the tiny island off the coast of Rhode Island, which is the last territory of New York State, remote from anything you can possibly imagine. Half the island is uh, billionaires, and the other half of the island are the servants, Serve the billionaires. And the billionaires obviously only live there for half the year, but the servants are there all the time. So they have a K 12 building, and the staff was 
about 25 people maybe, lovely people. And I said, please bring in artifacts of your building. So they brought in the usual things, copies of policies, memos, bulletin board pictures, and these kinds of things. And that was all fine. And one fellow came in with a lobster claw. It was like three feet. It was huge. He was a skin diver as a hobby. And he had caught this gigantic lobster. And I said to him, and that's the artifact that represents your building. And I had no idea why he brought it in. So after about an hour of conversation among these people, he was absolutely right. Representative of an island culture where the great majority of those children never left the island for any reason. The rest of the conversation was about the culture of a place that was so insular and what they needed to do to honor what was good about it and to overcome that for the sake of the children in the next you know, 25 years. Futuring. So, futuring. And it, the point is that the artifacts, you know, give the students or the staff members the opportunity to get to the true basic assumptions, the true things that have them come to work in the morning and truly understand what they're about. But that's the kind of thing you can do with looking at the raw data, so to speak. Now, you've mentioned a lot of books. What have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, Organizational Culture and Leadership, that's one I definitely recommend. That would be by Sean. Uh, Lee Cockrell, he's a writer now, but he was in charge of human resource and management for Disney. And the man has written four or five books now. If you read those books, you'll know how to work with people. Naming Elephants by Hammond and Mayfield. This is a book about how to get a group to work together. Terrific book. Good charts. It's about how to demonstrate data in a whole different way. Schools That Learn, that's by Senge. Actually, he's the editor of the book. I'm in the middle of reading a Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. Great book. If you don't get into the ideas of future from that, you just don't get into it. And then the book, Other World is Flat. So the book that I'm liking a lot is Digital Leadership by Scheninger. Oh, Thinking Fast and Slow. You have to read this book. Kahneman, Think Like a Freak. I love it. I'll give you one more, right? Okay. Super Forecasting, Philip Tetlock. He talks about probabilities and how people need to narrow what their conversation is about. Good futurists, they look at probabilities. If you watch the weather tonight and the meteorologist says there's a 30% chance of rain, they're giving you a window of probability. And obviously the narrower the window, the more likely the issue is going to happen. Either you wear a raincoat tomorrow or you don't. We're all, we're all futurists up to a point. We're just talking about training people to think more nearly like that. Be more intentional. That's exactly the right point. I remember hearing someone say to me, and this really shifted my life, so is that your default future? What? It's the most probable future, right? Unless we're intentional about shifting it. Exactly. So when people say we're in climate warming and then someone else will say, oh, no, we're not. And there are people who believe that. Someone's got to have enough sense to intellectually, truly analyze what the actual data tell you and then operate from what that means. And that's unfortunately what we don't do. If you go back to Kahneman, Kahneman says there's two types of thinking. There's level one and a level two. Level one is quick things. Should I brush my teeth this morning? Yeah, I should brush my teeth. Why I should brush my teeth is a level two decision because now you have to really think about why it is that you do that. And people don't like to think on a level two level because it makes your hair hurt. It's easy just to give snap decisions to things and do the things that we do and then suffer the consequences for being impulsive or not giving it its proper analysis. It's funny because I just heard recently that only 2% of us actually think. I believe that. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm, very, I'm, I'm part of that 2%, well, but I'm aspiring to it. You know what's interesting? This is where we are in education. How often do we really teach kids to think? Like I wasn't taught to think. I was just given information. And so when I had to shift, that was painful. But then it opened up so much for me. 
Isn't that the case, though? I met a professor from Finland, a research seminar we did, and basically that's what they do. They're making kids you know, think about what the data tell them, and they expect their teachers to think differently. The whole expectation is different. But I think it's going to begin with leadership. With yeah. Everything's going to rise and fall on leadership. So, Richard, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? Now, I know that you said you journal. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that. I essentially don't tell myself what to do when I wake up because then the journal entry is different. But in the end, I get around to that after I finish the journal, in, in truth. For me, and I got this from a book called The Artist Way. I don't remember the author. But basically, just free write. You know, write down whatever rolls through your little mind, and that something will emerge out of that. Not every time, but I would say the great majority of the time. And then I go on to what I need to do for the day. And I, I, then I get pretty goal-oriented. Believe it or not, a college professor's life is not as complicated as school leaders. But it's complicated because the variety of the tasks that come at you in a day, if you want to do it the right way, require that you keep a lot of balls up in there, at least for me. And what you're doing, too, is you're coaching leaders of schools. That's a big responsibility. Yeah, awesome responsibility. I'm smiling because I relish it. What frustrates me is sometimes you know, a dissertation will come through that is really very good and really powerful. And then you wonder what happens after that. Unless people find ways to bang the drum, even for their own personal leadership practices. I always say to them when they finish the dissertation, okay, now we're going on Charlie Rose. What are you going to say on Charlie Rose show? Sometimes they don't know what Charlie Rose is. And other times they'll say, well, it means A, B, C, D. And I like when I hear that. But sometimes they don't know the meaning of what they found means for practice. And that's troubling. Because, you know, as a leader yourself, things come at you so quickly. You haven't got time to future when a kid's throwing a pizza across the floor. You know you have to act on something quickly. Unfortunately, you get caught into that trivia and you don't have a chance to sit back in future. You just don't. We had a conversation yesterday about whether... That should be a position in a central office, assistant superintendent for future. We both know that's not going to happen. It talks that's about an interesting the, thought. Well, either that or everyone's got to be trained to do that. Which yes. I think sits more with how everybody then can move in the same direction. Well said. Sometimes I grit my teeth and say, no, I wish I would have become a superintendent. I would have made that happen. But uh, I'm doing it in a different way now. You are. So I wonder, right, so when the students leave you and you've coached them, because to me coaching is extremely valuable. Um, we don't have that in education mm. leadership after no. they leave. And that's part of why I do what I do, bringing coaching to leadership. Well, this is great value, tremendous value. That whole reflective practice premise that we just don't allow it to happen. And then when it, we do want it to happen, let's say a budget time where people have to defend whatever the expenditure is going to be, you force the tool to open too quickly sometimes. Okay, so, you know, Many educational leaders put in long hours. What advice would you give about maintaining balance? I'm not a good example of that, to tell you the truth. Again, thank God for my wife, because the wife kept the home fires going. So yeah. she's the one who helped. She was content to understand that I needed to play. But I don't advocate that. Looking back, I regret it to a large extent. So yes, you have to make room for your personal priorities, not only emotionally and relationship-wise, but also uh, physically. I play golf, I run a little bit, but I uh, paid much attention to that. It was all about what was the next thing I needed to do with uh, kids and with my students and my staff to make it, or our community to make it work better. I easily got caught up in that. That was a mistake. I would not recommend that for everybody. You know, sometimes people say your best virtue is your worst vice. Now, you can throw yourself into something, maybe you get pretty good at it, but something has to suffer for that. And that's probably one of the most challenging questions. Big time. You're not the only one that struggles with that. <laughs> Richard, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Not to take myself so seriously and be a lot more self-assured about who I was. The younger me would have said, no, you have to just keep clawing and scratching and get it all to come together to make it work. 
I'm not a real fan of failure. And that's what we learned the most. I right? know. I've learned that the last couple of years. I get it, but it took me a long time to figure that part out. Not just you. <laughs> not just you. <laughs> well, one of the very successful superintendent said to me, I failed many more times than I've succeeded. And I would never have guessed that, knowing him and what I do. So we've come to our last question. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? Maybe just to reiterate, I think the premise that we all have the obligation to help each other become more than what they are. I truly believe that. Everyone has the capacity to help other people become more than what they are. And in so doing, help themselves become more than what they thought they could be too. So if someone wanted to contact you, what's the best email address? The, the Gmail, rbernato, B-E-R-N-A-T-O, at Gmail. Richard, I want to thank you for adding value to me and to our listeners. I very much appreciate the opportunity. It's a pleasure to meet you. Hello, leaders. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries... Coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary in your professional and personal life. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.